Hi, I'm Pastor Colin Smith, Senior Pastor of The Orchard. We're a church that loves the Bible, and this podcast features sermons from pastors at each of our six locations. Our prayer is that these messages will help root you in the Word of God, nourish you in the Gospel of Christ, and help you to bear the fruit of the Spirit. Here's today's message. Well, when the 40th President of the United States, Ronald Reagan, when he was a kid, this is like the early 1900s, uh, his aunt took him to buy a pair of shoes from a cobbler. So back in that era, you know, you went to the town square and you got shoes from someone who actually sewed them together, glued them uh, together. You didn't like go on Amazon.com on your phone right now. You could order shoes during this worship service, right? Or DSW at the mall. Uh, So Ronald and his aunt went uh, shopping for shoes like they did in that day. And at the shop, the cobbler asked, do you want uh, square-toed shoes or do you want round-toed shoes? It was a typical style question. We have a lot more options today, but back then, that was the, the style question of the day. Unable to decide, Reagan didn't answer. So the cobbler said, hey, take a week. Think about it. Several days had passed, and the cobbler happened to see Reagan in the, in the street and asked him again, hey, what, did you decide? What kind of shoes do you want? Square-toed or round-toed? Reagan still couldn't decide. He said, okay, well, you know what? Just come by next week, and I will have your shoes ready for you. So when the future president did so, excited to show up to get the shoes, the cobbler handed him one square-toed shoe and one round-toed shoe. And Reagan said later, quote, I learned right then and there, if you don't make your own decisions... Someone else will, end quote. Indecision, passivity can be a problem, right? Sometimes a major problem. See, this life is coming at us, isn't it? A million miles an hour. I mean, the life is relentless. All, all kind of stuff coming at us every single day. A wide variety of situations that are happening to us. We need to keep in mind that The world will make decisions for us if we don't make them for ourselves. Friend, do you know this? The culture has many agendas for you. The culture wants to shape you. So does the sin, actually, that lives within you. We don't live in a neutral vacuum sort of world. As a result, to not decide about what you believe and what you will do is often a decision. So to be passive about your life means you will become a person the world wants you to be. While Reagan learned that lesson from a cobbler in the town square, we're going to look at the Bible today, God's Word. Last week, we, we started the series called On the Mountaintop with God. Mountains, do you know this, are a place where God meets with his people in the scriptures. The writer of Hebrews actually even says that church services like this are coming to the mountain to meet God. You're, you're, at, the, you're at Mount Zion, the writer of Hebrews says, to meet with God. So we're seeking to meet with God on the mountain here. Pastor Tom got to start us brilliantly, didn't he? Last week on the topic of assurance, Moses 
meeting with God through the burning bush on that mountain. I'm continuing today on the topic of resolve. So we've come here on the mountaintop with God for some resolve in our life. Determination. We need more of it, don't we? Christian life. So that we actively become more like Jesus rather than passively get shaped and conformed to the world. Now, the good news is it's just what God provides today for us in this passage. You walked in here with a certain level of resolve. I'm very confident of this. You're going to walk out of here with higher level of resolve. You're going to have more. You're going to be more ready to take on your world because why? We're meeting with God himself through his word. So God is going to work through what I say. God is going to work beyond what I say. God's even going to work despite what I say to help you, to increase your resolve. You ready for that? I don't know if you walked in here wanting that, but that's what's going to be delivered to you. So here's three points from the story of Mount Carmel to increase your resolve. First point from 1 Kings 18. I want you to see that the Christian life involves decisions to follow Jesus, not just a decision. So when you made the decision to become a Christian, uh, you you did this. You decided to live a life filled with decisions to become more like Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. And we see that principle in the life of Israel in the Old Testament through the, their experience of, of what's called syncretism. Syncretism is combining different religions, different worldviews, different points of view, or even different allegiances into one and seeking to live according to that mix, that amalgamation. For example, of uh, modern-day syncretism, Paul Knitter is a self-proclaimed, get this, Buddhist Christian. So he wrote a book called, Without Buddha, I Could Not Be a Christian. He said that he primarily identifies himself as a Christian. That's the noun of his life. But he also identifies himself as a Buddhist That's the adjective of his life. He's a Buddhist Christian, and he's an example of a contemporary syncretist. Now, inevitably, folks like this, they come to a crossroads in their life. They come to a crossroads. That's exactly where Israel's at in 1 Kings chapter 18, the crossroads of syncretism. And through this crossroads, here's what God showed Israel, that being his people meant present decisions to follow him, not simply a past decision to follow him. Look at the words of Elijah the prophet in verse 21. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Now that phrase you see there, limping between two different opinions, it's sort of the Hebrew equivalent of our, our phrase, on the fence. On the fence. We know what that means. We use it to, to refer to someone who is divided, indecision, has to take a stand and make a decision. Like, you know, where's your daughter going to college? 
you know, I don't know, Notre Dame or U of I. She's, she's on the fence. Or what are you going to get for lunch? A burger or a salad? I don't know. I'm on the fence. You can see why I'm, I'm regularly on the fence in those situations. We know that phrase. We can picture it in, your, in our minds, right? Fences aren't meant to be sat on, are they? It's totally uncomfortable, especially if they're sharp. You got to get off the fence at some point. I mean, you're sitting on a comfy chair right now, aren't you? Just kind of enjoying it. Imagine if we set out little mini fences in one row. How many people do you think would sit in that row? Nobody. It's not comfortable. It's not a pleasant place. It's not a sustainable place to be. That's the image of our contemporary idiom, on the fence. The Hebrew idiom, limping between two, it's a bit like that. The image wouldn't have been a fence, but rather two large tree branches that are going, that start near each other and are going a different direction. Imagine you're climbing a huge tree to sit. Remember when you did this, maybe when you were younger? To sit on a bough, a branch, and just kind of enjoy the scenery. And you're climbing that tree and you can't decide which branch to use. So you start hobbling out onto both branches. You're limping onto both branches. What's going to happen in that situation? If you stay committed to that strategy, what's going to happen? Well, some muscle pulls, clearly, for those of us who are less flexible. But even for you know, the, the Olympic gymnast, eventually the splits are going to happen, and eventually that's going to hit the ground in pain. It's not going to work. So you got to choose which branch you're going to sit on. That's the vivid picture of this uh, phrase in the Scripture. And that's exactly where Israel was. They were at a crossroads, limping along in an untenable position. They were sitting on the fence. They had to make a choice one way or the other. Think about this. Their decision to follow God long ago, it didn't mean they didn't have decisions to follow him every day. Actually, it meant the opposite. Their decision to follow God long ago meant precisely that they did have decisions to make every day to follow him. Their decision to follow God long ago was, in fact, why they were at a crossroads. It's important to note, this is really important, I think they arrived at that position of that crossroads, limping between two opinions, because they were passive indecisive citizens of the theocracy called Israel. Kind of like Reagan with the shoes. I don't think they were in active, decisive rebellion. Think about what happened. Ahab became king. 1 Kings 16.33 indicates he did more to arouse the anger of the Lord than all the kings of Israel before him. He was the most evil king yet, maybe ever. He forged a a political alliance with Sidon by marrying the the wicked princess Jezebel. He he introduced the systemic worship of the Phoenician god Baal as a matter of royal policy nationwide. He erected these Asherah poles to venerate that Canaanite uh, deity. He threw down all the altars of Yahweh and replaced them with the altars of other gods. He let Jezebel kill hundreds 
of the Lord's prophets. He trained up 450 prophets of, of Baal and gave them authority in the land. Ahab was absolutely, utterly wicked to the core. And he sinned greatly against the nation, against the Lord as king. And the Israelites, this is really important for you to get, the Israelites are just sort of simply the regular folks, you know, like us, the little people. Ahab threw all this stuff at them. They didn't initiate it. They sort of woke up one day and realized through Elijah that their country had really changed. In some senses, all of a sudden for them. I think that's why they just sat silent when the prophet confronted them. They were disoriented. Notice how they respond to Elijah. Do you see it there? I mean, they don't say, We love Baal. Long live Ahab. Jezebel is the best. No, they just kind of sat there without a response. But just because they weren't active in the rebellion, their passivity put them in a position where they were trying to be like a Buddhist Christian, a Baal following Israelite. There's no such thing. Now, I don't think we have a Jezebel in the hearing of my voice today, uh, or an Ahab. As I look out at your faces, I can't envision any of you being brazenly rebellious uh, like uh, those two, but I'm sure some of us at least, some of us are like the Israelites. Sort of passive and decisive, life coming at you a million miles an hour. Culture is just throwing all kinds of stuff at you, waging war against you, pressuring you, pressing your Christian values, even your own sin, getting the best of you. You haven't been proactive enough in your choices, and as a result, others are making choices for you. Or your sinful nature is, you realize, is a little bit kind of on autopilot with no check of your will, of your heart. You're becoming a person someone or something else wants you to be. You're being shaped more by the world than by our great God. Haven't you had this experience? Sort of wake up one day and you realize, I think that's an idol in my life. Like, how did I, how did I get here to this place? How did this happen? That now I'm putting my job before Christ. Or that the kids' activities seem to be in charge of the schedule in our house rather than the master of the universe being in charge. Or that I'm treasuring, I'm, I'm, I'm treasuring, I'm coveting, I'm valuing a relationship, humanly speaking, more than my relationship with God. Or that I'm thinking about my own comfort, you know, more than the mission of the Lord. Or that I'm coveting a possession, really want it, or a lifestyle, or some sin more than Jesus and his way of life. How'd this happen? You've been there, haven't you? Some of you there right now. I'll tell you how it happens. We're fallen human beings. We're living in a fallen world. And we need resolve, don't we? Supernatural determination from the outside infused into us to fight the idols in our lives on a regular basis. And we don't, when we don't have enough resolve, we end up where... They were here in 1 Kings chapter 18. Listen, you can't put that decision off forever. You can. 
At some point, the situation is going to come to a crossroads. The problem's not going to go away. So find resolve in this truth. Avoidance isn't a feasible long-term strategy. Why not make a change today? Why isn't today the day that you make a change? The fence is uncomfortable. You know that. The two branches are untenable. You know that. Christian life involves decisions to follow Jesus, not just a decision. Find supernatural determination in that reality. you got to deal with that sin issue of yours. Do it today. That's number one. Number two, I want you to see that sin is futile. Sin is futile. There's more resolve for you here than the first point. The second point is really helpful. Worshiping anything other than God, this reality, it's pointless. Disobeying him is useless. Now, during Elijah's time, the nation of Israel found that out very quickly. So like right after Ahab instituted all these sweeping changes to worship these false gods of rain and fertility, here's what the true God did. He delivered drought and famine. The Lord showed them clearly the fruit of idolatry is fruitlessness. Sin is futile. And this futility of sin is clearly seen in the competition on Mount Carmel, on our mountaintop today, between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Look at 1 Kings 18.26 again. And and they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice. And no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. So picture this. The prophets of Baal cried out for three hours to their idol. 450 of them. As they walked around the altar, that'd be like us times five probably. I mean, I don't know how many people are in here, but us, a lot more of us, getting up and walking around this pulpit for three hours saying, O Baal, answer us. O Baal, answer us. Over and over and over. Don't ever complain, by the way, about a long pastoral prayer. Here's three hours of prayer to nobody. Some false idol. And the ineffectiveness of the practice was obvious. After all that energy and all that effort, no voice responded, no one answered. So get this, the nation that was limping through the consequences of idolatry, unable to choose, right? Limping through two different opinions. That nation looked up because they were all gathered around the mountain. They looked up to the top of the mountain to see the life of their nation embodied in those prophets of Baal who were limping around the altar. Sin is futile. And it got weirder since there was no response after three hours of chanting the prophets went to greater measures to try to get the attention of their idol. Verse 28, and they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. 
So it's like at lunchtime, these guys got desperate. In the ancient world, self-mutilation mutilation for blood was practiced to sort of stir up you know, a, a deity's attention. It's like begging that God. You're not, you're not only just begging him in prayer, but you're like, come on, we're doing everything over here. We're cutting ourselves. We're bleeding. Answer us. So combined with those acts, they continued high-intensity prayer and chanting until the evening time, from lunchtime till the evening. So their calls out to Baal turned into a sort of frenzy up on the mountain in their own blood. Yet, still no answer. No one responds. Sin is futile. And since no one in heaven was paying attention, no one on earth did either. It's like the common Israelite came to this battle of the prophets on the mountain, you know? Sat down for the scene, got their snacks and soda, popcorn, peanuts, maybe it was manna and quail. I mean, I don't know what they were calling out there. They sat down to watch at the base of Mount Carmel. But when there were no fireworks up there by noon, you know, they kind of got kind of got bored. The cutting and wailing kind of recaptured everybody's attention up there. But six hours later, the audience was yawning even more. They weren't even watching. And while the second part of the story does point to the harm caused by idolatry, idols are cruel masters, my friends. You know this. Idols are cruel. While that's true, the story mainly communicates to us readers that sin is futile. It's pointless. It's useless. Friend, listen, you are not going to get to the end of your life. You're not going to get to, this is not going to happen. You're not going to get to the end of your life and think, I wish I would have made fewer decisions to follow after Jesus. You're not. You're not going to get to the end of your life. You're not going to lay dying in a hospital bed and think, I wish I would have sinned more. No, here's what's going to happen. Every single Christian will get to the end of their life and think, why did I waste so much time on sin? Why did I do that? You're not going to have the insecurity of wondering whether you're right with God and going to heaven. You're not going to have that right. You believe that, right? You're justified by faith alone. That is permanently secured for you in Jesus Christ. You know where you're going. You're eternally secure. But you are going to get the end of your life and you're going to think, why did I waste so much time on sin? Because the futility of sin will be made crystal clear to you as clear as ever when you face death. So be resolved. Today, now, to live for Christ, every decision you make not to live for him is futile. May that truth increase your resolve today to deal with whatever specific sin the Holy Spirit is speaking to you about. May you decide for Christ in that crossroads that you're facing. That's number two. Number three, and lastly, Jesus Christ is worth your decisions to follow him. The Lord, he was worthy. He was worthy. Back when you decided to become a Christian, when you were baptized, when you chose to follow him for the first time, he's also worthy for you to give your life to him today to make decisions to follow him this week. Now the battle of the prophets demonstrated just how glorious God is in comparison to everything and everyone else. He's worthy of all our lives. 
in the 2004 movie Troy, which depicted the legendary battle between the Greeks and the Trojans, there's a fight scene between Achilles and Hector, the two champions from each group. And Hector trips on a rock while they're, you know, dueling. They, they're dueling, they're going crazy, battling each other, and Hector trips backwards on a rock and falls down. And Achilles stands there and says, get up, I will not share my glory with a rock. In other words, he didn't want to kill him right there when he was down, because then everyone would have said, well, you know, Achilles, he won because, well, Hector tripped on a rock. The scene in 1 Kings 18 has a similar but even more pronounced message. The Lord made sure that no one could say, well, Baal, you know, he tripped on a rock. In fact, the Lord set the battle up so that it would favor Baal in every single way. That way, when he defeated Baal, everyone would have no choice than to give God and God alone the glory. Consider it. Consider the location of this battle of the prophets. Mount Carmel, if you know this, that was considered Baal's headquarters. So it was it was his home turf. Surely if Baal was in, in charge, this would be the place for him to show it, right? God gave him home field advantage. We don't need to flip a coin, you know? It's your place. The use, go first, right? Gave him that advantage. The use of the bull and lightning as well. The bull was the symbol of Baal and the lightning was, you know, considered his tools, one of his tools. So surely if Baal was God, he could send his tool a fire from heaven, and consume his chosen animal. So the location of the competition, the use of bull and lightning, how about the rules of engagement? Then they favor Baal? I mean, huge advantages. Hey, you take 450 prophets. The Lord says, I, I got one. They chose the offering. As I said, they got to go first. Their altar was already set up and was dry as a bone, ready for the slightest spark to set it ablaze. God's altar was in disrepair, at totally, had been thrown down already. So Elijah had to rebuild it, and then he drenched it three times to the point it was overflowing. So God had Elijah purposely stack the deck against himself. He tripped on a rock on purpose, right? Said to, to beat Baal. The length of the prayers, also think about that. The prophets of Baal, he said, hey, drone on for as long as you want. You got the entire day in this battle of the prophets. Take as much time as you need. For Elijah, Elijah said a, a prayer that lasted 23 seconds. Consider also the miraculous result. Look at 1 Kings 18.38. Don't you love this? Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering in the wood and the stones and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. So against all odds that God set up himself, he shows himself to be God. Nobody can do what he did. Are you aware of this? Wet wood does not light. Doesn't. Fire doesn't eliminate an offering. You know, generally it cooks it. Yes, the wood should burn, but stones... Have you ever seen a stone burn? They don't burn usually. And anything that burns leaves what in your fireplace? Ash. There's no dust. There's nothing. 
Moreover, all the water has been evaporated. It's all gone. So this is a one, uh, one event that's a miracle. Showed Elijah's God is the one true and only Lord of all. And his glory is like no other. But perhaps consider the glory of God on display in the taunts of Elijah. I love this part. Perhaps I like like trash talking a little uh, too much. I know that. Notice whereas Elijah, he says he mocks Baal, Baal for being silent or musing or going to the bathroom or sleeping or traveling. Do you see the Lord's glory in that? The Lord is glorified. Why? Because he's the one who speaks. He's the one who's omniscient. He's the one who's self-sufficient. He's the one who's omnipotent. He's the one who's omnipresent. In other words, God doesn't go on any journeys. He's already everywhere. He's glorious. God doesn't nap because he's always active. You know, his, his immutability, his never-changingness is that he never stops consciously engaging with all of his creation. He's glorious. God doesn't go to the bathroom because he doesn't have any need for anything. And he never has any waste of anything. He's glorious. God doesn't muse because he knows everything. He knows everything actual. He knows everything possible in his mind in one moment of time and at all times. He's glorious. And God, our God, he is not silent. Particularly when it comes to defending his honor and being faithful to his word. He is glorious. This third part of the story makes it clear. Elijah's God, our God is glorious. There's no one like him. He is worthy of every decision you ever make in your entire life. He is worthy for you to become more like him. And as amazing as Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel must have been, it's awesome to picture it. Wish we could have been there, right? As amazing as it was, think about the actions of God and the person and work of Jesus Christ. I mean, they are way, way more worthy of your adoration, Christian. The Son of God is a much more significant catalyst for your worship and your obedience. Think about the comparison between Jesus and this story and how much better Jesus is. See, while God spoke to one person in this story, Elijah, in a low whisper, think about how much better Jesus is. God spoke to all of humanity loudly in Jesus Christ. Soak this in. Consider this. Like when we speak a word, I'm speaking now, when we speak a word, it's, it's heard across some distance, right? It's even heard across some time as it's remembered in our minds. God's word to Elijah was a bit like that, wasn't it? But think about Jesus. He is the word of God heard not just by one person, but around the globe, and throughout the cosmos. Think about Jesus. We're still hearing this word that was spoken by God. We're still hearing it 2,000 years later. It's unbound by space and time, and everyone will hear this word forever. And oh, what a good word it is. Jesus from God. He incarnated in the womb of a virgin. He took on flesh and dwelt among us. He experienced all the pressure to conform to the culture and the world, but he resisted every single sin. You see, Jesus is the best word God could ever speak. He's worthy of every decision of your life. 
And Christ offered that perfect life willingly, joyfully. He's happy to do it to serve as a payment for every single one of the sins of your waste of time of life. Every single one of them he paid for. He died so that we might live. Think about the difference in the story. In contrast to the prophets of Baal shedding their blood to please their idol, our God shed his blood to save us from idolatry. He is worthy to follow today, Christian. And while that bull on Mount Carmel was consumed by fire from heaven, think about Jesus, our Lamb of God. He consumed the fire of God's wrath in his body, on our behalf, he propitiated the fury of God for you. He expiated your guilt. He wiped it away. He takes the sin away from you. He's a better sacrifice. He's the best. He's worthy of every decision you have to make. And despite how amazing Elijah's life and ministry were, think about the story. You know, he couldn't stop the sting of death for Israel. All those people who were gathered at that mountain today and saw that and walked away and said, I'm going to worship Yahweh. I'm rejecting Baal. All of those people went down to Shoal, the Old Testament place of the dead. But what happened in Jesus? What happened with our Lord? He laid down his life on the cross and then he picked it up again, man. He went down to Shoal, so to speak, and he, he had victory there. And he just walked right out of the tomb. Not only that, he sits at the right hand of God right now, calling you to follow him every day and in every way until you see him face to face, having beaten death itself for you. Jesus is so worthy. He's the best. See, God is so determined that you worship him alone. He's done the most spectacular thing imaginable. He sent his son to live and to die, to rise and to rule, and to return to make all things right and all things new. May we bow down today and say, Jesus, he is God. Jesus, he is God. He is worth all our decisions to follow him. He provides a resolve we need. Well, it's spring. You wouldn't know it living around here, right? It's like 71 days, snow in the next. I'm going to cut the lawn. No, you're not. Snow's there. But it's spring, time of new beginnings. It's a good time for spring cleanup. We do that. Yard. It's also a good time for the spring cleanup in your soul. Some spring cleaning in your life. Christian, you decided to follow Christ. That happened in the past. Praise God for that. What decision do you need to make today? What idols do you need to destroy? What prophets should you remove from your life? What sin needs to be decluttered from your heart? What habit that's bad needs to be just thrown away in the garbage? What bitterness needs to be tossed aside? May God give you more resolve, even today, even in this room, through his spirit, to actively follow his son into the joy of, of what is greater obedience. Father, we, we're your people and we praise you as our God. We love that you are the God who did this and you've made, us, you've made yourself known to us in this story in 1 Kings, this true story. We praise you even more for Jesus Christ. 
We ask that you would cause us to put you first, that you would inflame our adoration for you. We ask that you let it be known today, this day, that Christ is Lord, that he's God in the church, in us. And he's done all his work at your word. And Lord, for those of us who need some spring cleaning really badly, pray you'd give us the courage and resolve we need to walk out of here determined by your supernatural power to make a change. Do that in us. We need your help. Do that in us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Orchard Sermon Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, please subscribe, become a regular listener, and share the link with others. And if you're in the northwest suburbs of Chicago, we'd love to welcome you as our guest at one of the Orchard's six locations. For more information, go to theorchard.church. That's theorchard.church.